We've been talking about the Christian life as the big game. You saw a couple things happening up here. You saw the, the life of church happening, and you saw some football happening. And we've been talking about how you're on the field, you are players on the field, God is the coach, this field is working out God's big game, this big game of the Christian life. We've talked about your place on the team, how we learn how the game works. We understand that the object of the game is to make a goal and to score points. And we've also talked about boundaries of the game and rules of the game and how to get in the game. A couple weeks ago, we talked about our relationship with the game and how God takes us from the bench, calls us to the sidelines, and then invites us to jump into this Christian life. And then last week, we talked about the resilience that's needed. As we persist in the game, as we continue in the game, we need to have resilience in order to make it through the game. And today, I want to talk not about our relationship with the game, not about our relationship with challenges, but today I want to talk about our relationship with the coach. The coach. Uh, I want to share with you about a coach, uh, Vince Lombardi. Vince Lombardi is a famous NFL coach. In fact, he is so famous that even I have heard of him. He was a famous football coach from 1954 to 1969, and many consider him to be the greatest football coach in NFL history. He, he, no NFL coach has achieved more success so, as quickly as what Lombardi did in his nine seasons with the Green Bay Packers. So he won five NFL championships, including Super Bowl number one and Super Bowl number two, which is pretty cool. The Super Bowl trophy is named after him, which is why, why some of you might recognize his name. He's known for being this inspirational leader, this inspirational person who's coaching people into striving harder and doing the next big thing and coaching people into facing challenges with confidence. He said some famous things. You might recognize some of these sayings. Winning isn't everything. It's the only thing. He also said the measure of who we are is what we do with what we have. He said it's not whether you get knocked down. It's whether you get up. He said, the only place success comes before work is in the dictionary. (laughs) And finally, he said, we would accomplish many more things if we did not think of them as impossible. That's a good coach. That's a good coach pointing us toward the bigger things. We can admire a coach like Lombardi. We can admire him. Many people do. Great stories, great leadership lessons from him. We can admire him. We can even study him and think, okay, how did, how did Lombardi accomplish what he accomplished? What were his methods? What were his techniques? What were his training schedules? How did he think about things? We can study him and we can understand how he thinks and how he acts and how he works. But admiring a coach and merely understanding a coach is not the same thing as actually being coached by that coach. You hear me? So so let's make the connection here. Admiring Jesus and knowing some things about Jesus is not actually the same thing as letting Jesus be in charge of your life. You can know, you can admire Jesus. You can think he is a very creative teacher. He is a very noble person. You can enjoy singing worship songs about him. You can feel a a positive feeling as you sing worship songs, as you think about the greatness of God. That's admiring him, and he's worthy of our admiration. And it's not enough to just know him. You can know a lot about the Bible. You can know, you can even know theology. You can know lots of stuff. But it's not enough to just admire Jesus. It's not enough to know him If you're going to be on Jesus' team, you also have to let him coach you. You have to let him be in charge of you. Because he wants your admiration, he deserves your admiration, he deserves your knowledge and understanding, but he also deserves leadership in your life. And this is the true mystery and power of the Christian life. This is where the transformation happens. When we let Jesus coach our lives. When we let Jesus lead the way. We need to be coachable. We've been looking at the life of Moses. 
And we've been looking at how Moses, uh, he had the burning, uh, the burning bush. He came to the burning bush, and in the burning bush, God spoke to him, and God said, Moses, I'm calling you off the bench. I'm here, we're in the sidelines. We're having this little conversation, Moses. And in our sidelines conversation, I'm getting ready to, to knock you on the side of the head and get you up there and play the game. Moses didn't do so well with that, but he eventually did reluctantly get in the game. We've talked about how part of the Christian life involves moving from the sidelines and getting in the game. And then last week, we talked about the Red Sea, how the Israelites began their journey out of slavery, how for 400 years they had been enslaved and God miraculously delivered them from slavery, saying, I have something better for you. I have a new life for you. This is what God is saying to all of his people. I want to take you out of your bondage and bring you into the new thing, a new life, a new plan that I have, not just for you, but a bigger thing that I'm working out for all people. I want you to be part of it. And this began with the Israelites back in Exodus. And so they came to the Red Sea, and and behind them were the Egyptians who were chasing them. On another side was the wilderness where they were going to die. On on another side, there was the Red Red Sea in front of them. They were completely surrounded with nowhere to go, and they called out to God, and God said, trust me, and then he parted the Red Sea so they could pass through on dry ground. Last week, we talked about resilience and how we need resilience for playing the game. We need resilience for the Christian life. The Christian life isn't just this easy thing and then everything, you become a Christian and everything goes right. Or you've been a Christian for a long time so everything should go right because you've been a Christian for a long time. The Christian life is hard just like all of life is hard because we are battling an opponent that is significant and we're waiting for victory day when God finally wins the game. And so, and so, we have this week then the story of Moses and the Israelites and the manna and the quail. So we'll be digging in today into Exodus chapter 16. They have now been on the road coming out of Egypt for one month. This is the beginning of what would become 40 years of journeying in the desert. They've been on the road for one month. And so far, there have been two major things that have happened. Number one, God has done miracle after miracle after miracle. Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper. I mean, they're seeing all the things. They're seeing this miracle and that miracle. He did the 10 plagues. He did the Passover. He miraculously delivered them. He parted the Red Sea. He's in all sorts of things. So we've seen lots of miracles. And the other thing that we've consistently seen is lots of complaining. And so they've been on the road for one month. They've complained about their enemies attacking them. They've complained about how slavery was better than freedom. Things get twisted in your mind sometimes. They've complained about a lack of water. They've complained about a lack of food. They've complained over and over about all sorts of things. And here they are. They're only one month into this journey. And that brings us to where we are today in Exodus chapter 16, verse 2. In the desert, the whole community grumbled. Read that with me, please. In the desert, the whole community grumbled. Can you give me a sound of grumbling? Good job. Good job. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around, pots of meat, and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. They've grumbled. Some translations say they murmured. Some translations say they spoke bitterly, or they complained. And they say, can't you just imagine? It's like teenage drama on display. We we just should have died. If only we were in Egypt. <laughs> and that you think that the world is coming to an end. They're, they're, they're not thinking straight about this. They're, because before they were calling out the scriptures, they were calling out under the impression of, of the oppression of slavery. They were in a really bad place. And now they're saying, well, at least we weren't hungry. Did you know that your general attitude has a significant effect on your faith? That if you practice discontentment and if you practice grumbling and you allow grumbling and complaining to have a regular part of your vocabulary and a regular part of your brain, that that will form your faith. It will form the way that you live the Christian life, not with faith, 
It will form the way that you live in negativity rather than hope. It will form your, your, your Christian life in a way so that you're focusing on human ability and not God's ability. It really takes your eyes off heaven and gets them on earth and really narrows your focus. Your attitude has a significant effect on your faith. There's power. There's power in grumbling. And we grumble because we have a small view. We only can see that we're hungry right now. We forget about he literally parted the Red Sea like a week ago. <laughs> we forget about the Passover when he miraculously saved the Hebrew babies and did not save the Egyptian babies. We forget about all of that. We, we grumble because we, we see this. Grumbling affects a very important quality of any player in the game. Grumbling affects your coachability. Are you coachable? Here we have the Israelites, and God is calling them to get into the game. They've been invited into the game. God says, we're doing a thing. We're doing a big thing. I'm doing this big thing in this world, and Israel, you are called to be my players in this season. This is what I have for you. And he says, it's go time. Let's go. And they say, murmur, murmur, grumble, grumble, grumble. Grumbling affects your coachability. One of the ways that grumbling twists things is grumbling takes the problem and makes it the center focus. Grumbling says, here's my problem. I'm going to put it right here. I'm going to put it between you and me. I'm going to put it between you and God. And I'm going to let this problem be right here. And I think what we need to do is recognize what the problem is and what the problem isn't. Because who are they grumbling against? They're, gr they're grumbling against Moses and Aaron. They're specifically grumbling against God. They're grumbling against God. But what's the real problem? The real problem isn't Moses. The real problem isn't Aaron. The real problem is not God. The real problem is they're hungry, which is a legitimate problem, right? I mean, they've been hungry for a while. They're, they're, it is a legitimate problem. But they're shifting, they're making the problem about God rather than about what the problem really is. We need to pay attention to this because we do this in our own spiritual life as well. We say, this pro I have this problem with you, God. And God's like, I'm on your side. Adam and I went through seminary together, and so we went through uh, counseling classes together. This is kind of reminding me of a marriage counseling thing. We went through marriage counseling classes together, and, and, uh, and, and that was really nice, like going through classes together, except when we would get home, and eventually we, we had some sort of conflict, and he started using techniques on me. And I recognized it. I'm like, you're using a technique on me. Oh, it made me so mad. But eventually, I eventually became okay with it because I'm like, okay, it's actually helpful and it's working, so it's okay, I suppose. But, but one, of the thing, one of the techniques that we were, were taught was when you have a conflict, the thing is, is let this problem not be the thing between you and the other person. Put this thing outside of the both of you, and then rather, this problem, rather than this problem being between you, put this problem outside of you, and then the two of you together come at the problem together. Adam wasn't the problem. I wasn't the pr Adam wasn't totally the problem. I wasn't totally the problem. Let's together work on this problem together. So it took, it took the problem away from being on people and put it where it belonged and then allowed us to team up together. I don't know if I explained that well. I'm not a teacher of counseling. But, but I think we do this, I think this is what's happening here with the Israelites. They're saying, we have this problem with you, God. And God's like, I'm not the problem. Let's, vote, let's address the problem. Call out to me for your problem. I'm ready to help you with your problem. I've got a solution for your problem, but I'm not your problem. Grumbling twists all that around. Grumbling gets us in the wrong frame of mind, gets us on the wrong path. There's power in grumbling. We need to not let it have this power on us. Being coachable means this. Number one, being coachable means when you question his plays, you still trust him. If you're going to be a coachable Christian, it means when you question what God is doing, you still trust him in it. This doesn't mean that you can't question God. You can question. You can ask God questions. You can say, God, I don't understand. You can say, God, this does not make sense to me. Jesus said this. Jesus said, God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus had questions Saints of the Bible had questions. We can ask questions of God. 
asking questions, wondering what God is doing. God, I don't understand this. God, I don't like this. God, I really, I've told God before that I think he messed up. And I know in my heart, like, he didn't, but it feels like he messed up. It's okay to ask those questions. Well, but there's a difference between complaining and biblical lamenting. There's a, di- there's a way to do this. There's a way to ask questions. There's a way to struggle in a faithful way. So there's, you all know what complaining is, but lamenting in the Bible is you lay out your complaints. Oh, God, my heart is broken over this. Oh, God, I am in despair. God, I am in a pit. There's a psalm that's a lament that says, I am in a miry pit, a deep, dark, black pit. And, and there are plenty of those laments that, that state those difficult things that we're going through and give us an opportunity for us to voice, God, I am hungry. God, I am struggling. But the thing that makes a lament a lament is that it always includes a statement of faith. So rather than saying, so God, I walk away from you, I mean, the Israelites were saying, God, we're turning our backs on you and going back to Egypt. Rather than doing that, lament says, but God, I trust you. But God, I'm choosing to believe you are good. There have been times when I have prayed, God, I'm struggling to trust you, but I want to trust you. Help me to trust you. There have been times that I've prayed, God, I feel like you're not good, but I know that can't be true, so help me to really, truly believe that you are good in this. A a lament has a statement of faith where it takes the problem, doesn't put the problem on God, but says, God, let's you and me together. I'm with you, God. Let's go at this problem together. There are ways when you question his plays that you can still trust him. This is what happens next in the passage, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Here's what I'll do for this problem. I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them. What's he going to do, church? I will I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. God just said here that he is testing them. And some of you are going to have a problem with that, and you're going to think, God shouldn't test people. Well, again, don't start blaming God because that's not going to get you anywhere. God is training people. He's training people. He's training people because he says, you need to grow. He says, I'm shifting you from being new recruits on, this, on the team, and I'm shifting you to becoming, I, I see your potential, and I'm shifting you to becoming fully developed, fully devoted, valuable players on this team. The game is so important, and what we're playing for, the stakes are so high, and the, the thing that we're accomplishing together is so good that I just want more, not only from you, but for you. I want you to find this victory of this game that's ultimately going to lead to our ultimate joy and meaning and fulfillment in life. God is testing us. God wants to use tests to help us get stronger and better and deeper. Now, not all difficulties in your life are because of God testing you. Sometimes you go through difficulties in your life because you have created your own disaster. And then God's going to help you get out of it. He's going to give you a way forward. He'll help you through that. But some of it's because of you. You just have to admit that. But sometimes testing comes uh, because life is just hard. Because life is bad. Because we live in a fallen world. It's not anybody's fault. It's just, it just is. And sometimes we have those kinds of tests. And then sometimes we have tests in which God allows us to go through things in order to deepen us and challenge us and grow us and, and take us further. So being coachable means, number one, when you question his plays, you still trust him. And number two, when you are being tested, you try to learn the lesson. You you try to learn the lesson. It would have been great, and maybe there there was somebody in the Bible, we just don't have a record of it, but it would have been great if, if someone of the Israelites could have said, 
we're super hungry, and it's really scary being this hungry. I'm really scared that I can't feed my kids. But God did, but if I stop and if I remember, and if I refocus, and if I get my mind in the right place, I can remember he parted the Red Sea. He did plague number one, plague number two, plague number three, plague number seven, plague number nine, plague number ten. And then he like delivered us from Egypt. So God help me, help me know what to do. Help me believe. It would have been great if, if someone could have said that. When you're being tested, try to learn the lesson. God, what do you have to teach me? There are certain things that God can only teach you when you are in a dark place. There are certain lessons you can only learn in the miry pit. There are certain things that God can only form in you in the dark places. When my sister was in high school, she had an injury. There was, some, there was a, something that went wrong with a, a, a medical procedure, and she ended up with chronic pain for over a year. And when you're a teenager, that's a, what's a big deal anytime, but especially when you're a teenager, you're just trying to sort through it. And when you're a teenager and you're going through a big thing, some big trauma, whether it's that or some other sort of big trauma, you lose all your friends in times like that, right? Because people just don't have a framework for how do you, how do you walk with somebody, how do you be friends with somebody who's in chronic pain like this? I mean, adults have a hard time doing that, much less teenagers. And my sister came to my mom one day and she said, Mom, do you think that maybe God is punishing me for something? And you know, sometimes God does give us consequences for our sins, for sure. But sometimes life just happens. And I think the question is really valid. God, what do you want to teach me? My mom could have answered that. She could have answered like a loving parent who hated to see her child hurt. And she could have said, oh, no, 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 it's not that. It's just, it, it's not that. You're fine. She could have said that. But would that really have convinced my sister? My sister needed to learn this for herself. And so wisely, my mom, in a really great coaching moment, said to her, you know what? Why don't you go pray and ask God that question and see what he says to you? And my sister, as a young person of faith, did that and felt a sense of connection with God and had a good prayer time and came out of that just feeling a lot more confident with where she stood with God. She had to learn that herself. It didn't matter what people told her. It was more she had to learn that. And the coach helped her experience that learning moment. When we're going through tests, when we're going through difficulties, if we can ask the question, God, help me to learn everything out of this. God, help me to learn whatever you want to learn out of this. God, I'm really done learning from this lesson, but if you have one more thing for me to learn, help me to learn it. And one of the things about God's timing is he never really picks a convenient time to test you. It's not like you know final exams are coming up and you've got a week to cram really quick so that you can quick pass the test. It's a lot more like a pop quiz. You're going along in life and they always have a pop quiz on the day when you're least prepared. It's like the one day you didn't do the homework, right? That's when they have the pop quiz. And that's how God often does it. It's never a good time. And here God is doing a test for them when they are super vulnerable. He's not testing them when they first, uh, uh, the, how we talked about last week, they, they marched out of the promised land and they marched out confidently, armed for battle. They thought they were going to fight the Philistines. They, God's like, you're not going to fight the Philistines. Like, there's no way you're prepared to fight the Philistines. They, they're like, we're ready for battle. And God's like, I'm not testing you now. I'm not testing you now. I'm going to wait until you're weak. And it's when they're hungry and a little scared that he says, all right, this is it. And he does this not because he is all about, he takes pleasure in causing our pain. He does this because he is a good coach and a wise coach, and he knows exactly what we need. They're adjusting to a new coach. They're, they're trying to figure out, how do, we, how do we relate to having this new coach in our lives? 
I watched, I've been watching some videos, some YouTubes and TikToks and things like that about coachability. In fact, I've been studying football so much for this series that I now have football ads popping up in my social media feed because they think that I like know things about that now. And as I've been watching, I watched some of these videos this week about coachability. And I was reading, I was watching about uh, these recruiters who said, if you're, if you're a high school student and you want to know what college recruiters are looking for, then watch this video. And so they said, this is what we're looking for coachability. We're not just looking for talent. We're looking for, can you, re- can you receive coaching? Are you committed to just being a star or are you committed to being part of a team? Are you committed to just being a star and doing your own thing or are you, commi- or are you willing to receive instruction from the coach? Will you learn from the coach? Will you do what the coach says or are you pretty convinced that you know how to play and you don't need any coach telling you how to do that? One recruiter gave an example. He said, uh, I, I, wa- I was watching a guy at a football camp and he had a lot of talent. He was good. But when he left that day, I watched him off the field. And as he left the field, he, he gave all his big bag to his parents and made his parents carry his bag and then proceeded to yell at them as they were walking to the car. And he's like, that was it. That's it. Because I need people who are coachable. It's not just about performance. It's not just about skill. It's about who you are. It's about how you play the game. It's about how you interact with your team. And so they're adjusting, the Israelites are adjusting to a new coach. And God says coachability is a really big deal for people who are part of the Christian life. If you're going to be complaining and grumbling about practice, about the heat, about how hard that workout is, I I don't know how coachable you are. If you're going to be rolling your eyes at the coach, not a good sign of your coachability. The coach is recruiting for a team, not just one player. The coach is recruiting for a really big thing that's going on. This work of, that God is doing, that he started in Genesis, that he kicked off with Abraham, that he then had another kickoff with Moses and was brought to completion in Jesus, and now we are living in the Jesus Pentecost Holy Spirit life. This work that God is doing throughout all of history is a really big deal. In fact, it is the biggest deal. And as Christians, we get to participate in this cosmic movement that God is doing to redeem humanity, to restore humanity, and to bring us all into the promised land. It's a big deal. And the coach says, I'm recruiting for a team. I'm recruiting for the right, I, I'm recruiting for the right positions and I'm recruiting for the right people. The, the difference with God is that he wants everybody on his team. He wants everybody to be part of it. But you've got to be coachable. Your lack of coachability won't stop God from what he's doing. It will just stop your participation with it. So Moses, through the Lord, uh, the Lord through Moses gave the people instructions. I'm going to rain down. I'm going to give you quail. I'm going to give you bread from heaven on the sixth day. Prepare what you bring in. Do twice as much on the sixth day. That brings us down to verse 13. That evening, quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. So in case you don't know what quail looks like, here's a picture of a quail. There you go. This is their, so every night the quail would come and the quail, this is their source of protein and the manna was their source of carbs. And so uh, here's, here's the quail. This was their lean protein that they ate for literally 40 years. This, man, this quail and manna then came for 40 years and it only stopped, this is so cool, it went exactly for 40 years until the Israelites got to the edge of the promised land and got ready to actually move into the promised land. And at that point, that's, the Bible tells us later on, that's when the manna and the quail stopped. But for 40 years, that's what they have. That's a question for the judgment day someday, Diana. And then there's this manna. 
Then there's this manna. It's, it's like this uh, white, fl- thin flakes, like frost on the ground. I kind of picture like a, a light blanket of snow. I, I kind of picture instant mashed potatoes being spread all over. I think that's kind of like what it, the texture of consistency of what it's like. And so then they're supposed to go out. They're like, what is this? <laughs> what is this stuff? And Moses says, this is your bread. This is your daily bread. Scoop it up. Cook with it. Boil it. Bake it. Fry it. Make a dough. This is your food. And they're like, all right. So that's what they do. That's what they do. Verse 16. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one... Each one is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. Pause for just a moment. An omer is about, a t- picture a two liter, a two liter of pop. It's about that much. So it's about a two liter per person. So if you have four people in, f- in your family, you did get four two liters. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. Which brings us to our first test, test number one. They're supposed to gather this stuff. They're supposed to get exactly the right amount. They're supposed to do it every day, and they're only supposed to get enough for one day. And then on the sixth day, they're supposed to gather double. They're they're not supposed to keep it overnight into the next day. You can tell where this is going to go, right? Verse 20. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as he needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. Here for your viewing pleasure is a picture of maggots. So sometimes, sometimes, God in his grace and in his mercy makes our sin so disgusting and makes it so stinky and gross that it helps us not want it. That's a mercy when that happens. But this was test number one. This was test number one. Some of them failed it. See, they're adjusting to a new coach. They're like, this coach is crazy. This coach is like raining birds and raining bread. And, and like sometimes there's a sea that moves. Like this coach is kind of crazy. I can't trust this coach. I don't, I don't know what's going on. And God is teaching them, I want you to depend on me. Now you can imagine, can't you, why some people would have kept the manna until the next day? Yeah, they just, they were, they were hungry. They had just been through this period of hunger, and what do you do when you're hungry and then you have abundance? You save it up so that then you don't have that problem again. And here, God says, nope, that's not how we're going to do things. That's not how we're going to do things this time. I want you to, to practice daily reliance on me. I only want you to gather what you need for one day. I don't want you to gather too much for one person. I don't want to gather too little for one person. This is exactly what I want you to do for your daily bread. And for 40 years, God trained them through this daily practice of gathering only what they needed for their daily bread. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, we read that this test was to remind Israel that they did not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Something like this reminds you, it's not just about stockpiling the bread. It's about daily connection to Jesus. It's about daily connecting with the Lord, daily dependence. God wants, in his players on the field, he wants to develop daily dependence on him. So being coachable means, number three, you participate in daily training. You participate in the daily training. You show up to practice every day. A few weeks ago, we had Savantas from the EK high school football team come and talk a little bit about that experience. And Savantas starts football practice, I don't know, is it June or July? It's crazy. Like, he's basically playing football. And then there's off-season. He's basically playing football all year long. There's just, there's a constant daily practice. 
Dallas Willard gives a quotation that I think is helpful for us. He says, we advise the young athlete to enter a certain kind of overall life, one involving deep associations with qualified people as well as rigorously scheduled time, diet, and activity for the mind and body. We say, you're a young athlete? All right, it's going to be lots of discipline. All right, you're a young athlete? All right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to train together from here to here on purpose. We're going to do things that hurt your body on purpose because we're going to make you better. We're going to eat together as a team. We're going to spend time together because, you know what? Becoming formed into the likeness of Jesus is going to take your time, and you're not going to want to give it, but you can't become a mature Christian without investing time. And so we, we, we say this to our athletes, let's invest, let's invest the time, let's invest the energy, let's lean in, and we're like, yeah, 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 go work hard. And then we come to Christianity, and, we're, and we say, how can we make this as easy as possible for people? And I would say this is, this is not the kind of thinking we need. We need the kind of disciples of Jesus who say, I'm all in, and I'm willing to train with the coach. I'm willing to let him take me through hard things. I'm willing to be matured. I'm willing to be challenged. I'm willing to be pushed. You participate in the daily trainings. So the, the rebel in me asks the question, what happens if you don't? What happens if you don't? What happens if you say, I'm not really interested in being like an athlete on the field. I'd be more interested in being, you know, like a fan in the crowd. What, what happens if you don't conform? What happens if you refuse the training? What happens if you decide, I'm just not going to practice today? I mean, if SJ said, I'm, I'm out this week, I'm, I'm kind of tired, I'm going to take a break. I, I just need a break for a little while. The coach would be like, You're, you, can't, you can't play. What if, what if you decide, I'm going to go gather the manna, but I'm not going to use it all tonight. I'm, I'm going to mostly obey God. I'm going to do, like, do part of the obedience. We trick ourselves into thinking partial obedience is enough. I'm going to gather the manna, and then I'm going to save some. What happens if you decide, I never want to be hungry again, so I'm just, I know better than God, and so I'm just going to do my own thing. We do this all the time. We say, God, I know better than you, so I'm just going to take matters into my own hands. I'm just going to make some decisions here without consulting you, without praying about this, without having a sense of clarity, without consulting other brothers, other brothers and sisters in Christ for wisdom. We, we do this all the time. There, and the consequences for not conforming are stink and bugs. The opposite of being coachable is being rebellious. Rebellious. Having that little bit of a rebellious spirit in us that says, I'm not going to do it that way. I don't, I don't like that way. I think I've got a better way. Some of you would say, I am a rebel. <laughs> I know that about myself. And, and, and some of you would, would say, I, when I, I'm just going to rebel, I'm going to rebel loud, and this is how it is. And, and you, you put it all on social media, this is, this is me rebelling. <laughs> Others of you have a little quiet rebellions in your heart. You wouldn't let people know that, but inwardly, there's this resistance. And you don't, you don't like other people telling you what to do. You don't like God telling you what to do. You don't like these rules. You don't like these boundaries. And there's this rebellious tendency. We all have it. We are all on this spectrum of rebellion somewhere. And I'm not saying one kind is worse or better than another. I'm just saying it's all in us in some way. Rebellion is the first human sin. It was the rebellion of Adam and Eve against God saying, hey, we know better than God and we know what fruit we should eat better than he does. It's the, it's the first human sin. It's this opposition to authority. It's this, it's, it's this thing that begins in our hearts. We have rebellion sometimes against God's rules. I mean, God's game is, in a way, with any game, you have rules. You've got boundaries. You can't go outside of the boundaries of this field because if you do, you're out of bounds. 
There are rules about this is how you play. These are things you can't do. These things are deal breakers, and then they're going to get you a timeout. And then there are the refs in the game. Everybody, nobody likes, to, likes a ref, right? So our friend Queese here, our worship leader Queese, Queese is also, Queese is a ref. Um, he, refs, he refs for volleyball and basketball. It's a big part of his life. And it's just so funny because like Queese is like the nicest person I know. And I can hardly imagine people being mad at him, but yet he says they do. He says they get mad at him about things and they don't like the calls that he makes. And sometimes there are going to be people who are part of the game with you who are making calls that you don't like. And sometimes the refs are, I mean, Queese is never wrong, but sometimes other, other refs are sometimes wrong. <laughs> and, and they're not always right, but the reality is, is we're playing this game and we don't like a ref. We don't like a ref calling us out that we crossed the line. We don't like that God has rules. We, we're like, okay, God, he, these are the boundary lines that you set. But in this case, I would like the boundary line of the field to kind of go out like this a little bit to accommodate this other thing that I want to do. And God's like, doesn't work that way. The, rebellious, the rebellion in us, the, the rebelliousness in us resists conforming. Resists conforming. And yet training involves submitting to the coach. You've got to participate in the daily training and receive the challenging pushback. The passage continues, skipping down to verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, This is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. This is test number two. On the sixth day, they're supposed to gather double. So where you had one two-liter, now you've got two two-liters per person. And, you're, and then you're supposed to keep it overnight. And those who didn't keep it, those who kept it overnight before, they're like, we're not doing that again. That was disgusting. That was terrible. We're never doing that again. But now here's God saying, now you're supposed to do it. And they're like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to do it this time. I just keep thinking, who are these, who are the rebels who like took it when they weren't supposed to and didn't when they, when they were? And I just had to think, there are, some of you have had curious little children who if they would have heard this, like eight, nine, or 10-year-olds, who if they would have heard this instruction, they would have been like, I'm gonna go just get a little bit of manna and just like put it in my pocket or hide it under my bed and see what happens. How many of you have kids like that? I have a child like that. And some of you would have thought, well, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna do my own thing. But, but here we have, now, now God is saying, go out and get both. Go out and get both. A double, get double and keep it. Verse 27, nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where he is on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. Test number two is about Sabbath. Sometimes God gives instructions for starting. Sometimes he gives instructions for stopping. And this pattern of Sabbath means for six days, we gather our daily bread. On the seventh day, we trust our daily bread to come from God. Sabbath always involves a couple things. It always involves corporate assembly. That means gathering with the larger body of believers. If you go through the scriptures, every time includes that. And it also involves stopping from the work that is your bread and butter work throughout the week. And so here we have people who are told to practice a weekly rhythm of Sabbath. That being coachable means, number four, 
you participate in weekly training. Being coachable, being part of the team, involves a weekly rhythm as well, a weekly rhythm that is so significant that the Bible talks about this over and over and over again, about the role of Sabbath and the need to keep it holy. Sabbath just hits different than the other days of the week. It is important to the coach that just like he rested in creation, that we rest mirroring the work of God. We participate in the work of God and then we rest from our daily bread and butter, from our striving to keep ourselves fed on one day. That we gather for worship. That we remember who we are and who we belong to. I've been thinking a lot about Sabbath and how it practically plays out in, in local churches like City Life. I was reading some statistics this week about, about uh, what's, what's being called the great de-churching and how in just the last 25 years, 16% of the American population that used to attend church no longer attends a local church at all. People have disassociated themselves from the game, and they said, I will be an, many of them have said, I'll, many of them have said, I'm not going to play the game anymore, I'm not even going to be a Christian, but many of them are, would still say, I, uh, I would still call myself a Christian, but I've, I've removed myself from the team. I'm going to be my own individual player, I'm not going to be part of the, part of the team. And we can only, we, there are lots of reasons why this movement's happening, and we could spend lots of time on that. But my point in bringing it up is, I don't want us to be that. I don't want us to be that. Because there are things that we need to do together. And Sabbath involves figuring this messy thing out together, this messy church Sabbath life together. Pastor Debbie preached at City Life here a few months ago, She's from Kentwood Community Church. And one of the things that she was saying about discipleship recently is that without discipleship, they found within three months, people who are new Christians fall away and leave, leave the Christian faith. If they don't have that discipleship, if they don't have that training, if they don't spend time learning and training and growing. You see, this forming matters. The practices that we do daily and weekly matter in how they affect our lives. We have a bunch of different practices here of, of ways that we practice daily and weekly forming. And we've been talking about life groups the last few weeks. Uh, Pastor Phil has a couple different uh, discipleship groups for, for men and for women and for ways that we're trying to just go deeper and say, hey, let's do training, let's do intentional training. There's a lot of ways that we can grow. There's baptism training that um, I'm talking to some people about this week. There are lots of ways that we need to enter into training and say, hey, I'm, I'm taking this seriously. I'm leaning in. But God wants us to be coachable. If we're not coachable, if, if we're focused on the grumbling, if we're focused on putting the problem between us and God, if we're focused on my rebellious sense of right and wrong and how that's in conflict with God, if we focus on that and just don't let God be in charge, all of those things are going to affect our ability to really play the game, to enter into the life that God has for us. We all have a, a rebel streak in us. We all do. There's a part in all of us that sometimes loses hope and leads into despair. But we can only really be coachable. Like, what's, what's the key to being coachable? We can only really be coachable if we're totally devoted to the coach. You can love the game, but if you don't love the coach, eventually that's not going to be enough to just love the game. I'm thinking about an experience that my own kids had with a coach that just didn't believe in them. He, he had a few favorite players, and then the rest of the players weren't really given any time or space. And, and if only the coach could have said, hey, you're not my best player, but I see you. That would have really made a big difference. God sees you. God sees you. God's doing something big, and the difference between a, a human game and and this thing that God's doing in the Christian life is that every single one of you is being personally recruited by God to be part of this thing. Every single one of you. And he wants you to be coachable. He wants you to have the kind of heart that will, that will say, okay, 
he doesn't want you to be rolling your eyes. He doesn't want you to just be all about you. He, does, he says, I see you've got some talent, I see you've got some skills, but let's talk about your humility. Or maybe he says, I see your humility, but you're, you're grinding yourself into the dirt. Let's, let's talk about your identity in me and who I've really made you to be. But we can only really be coachable when we're totally devoted to the coach. When we love the coach. Because when we love God, when we love God, then we'll do anything for him. We'll train. We'll, we'll do two days of manna, even if it doesn't make any sense to us. We'll, we'll, we'll walk out in faith. We'll, we'll make that hard decision. We'll accept that hard call, even when it rubs us the wrong way, when we get called out on something and there's a boundary, we get called, we'll, we'll accept it because we'll say, God, I don't like it, but I love you and I'll take it. If you love, if you love the coach, that's, that's the best step toward being coachable. And I guess I'd just go one step further and say, you can only really love the coach if you know how much he loves you. The Bible says we love because he first loved us. We can only really love the coach when we understand that we're loved, that we've been picked for first string. That's how God does it. We're all his favorites. We're all his first string players. We can only really love the coach when we realize how much he loves us. That his desire to get us on the team is not just so we'll work for him and we'll enter into slavery with God rather than slavery with the Egyptians. No. He wants us on his team because he has a promised land for us. He has a promised land for us. He's got a new life, a, a new life of freedom, a new life of fullness and plenty and goodness and all of the things that our hearts are longing for, the freedom we really want, the freedom that in our rebellion we think we can make it happen on our own, all those things, God is working it out. We might not see it in the timeline we want. We might not even see it in this lifetime. But we know that some of this fruit we will see in our lifetime and ultimately in the long scheme of things, one day God will make all things right. And this is what it looks like to be part of the Christian life. To jump in the game. To recognize it's going to take some resilience because what we're fighting for is a big thing and it really matters. And also, to be coachable. Because you can know a lot about the coach. You can have lots of information about the coach. You can admire the coach. But unless you're receiving what the coach wants to do in you, unless you do what the coach tells you to do, unless you let the coach be in charge of your life, you're going to be missing out on the biggest life change of all. So today you're invited into a really big thing. To surrender your will to God. To say, it's not, not my will, but yours be done. And some of you are saying, I've prayed that prayer a hundred times. You might need to pray it 101. It's the kind of prayer we have to pray about every day. Because getting up and training, and no matter how many months you've been training as an athlete, there are still days where it's hard to get up and go. And so today, your invitation is just, here I am, coach. Change me. Take me. I submit to you. I surrender to you. I want to do it your way.